Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you well? Good, good. Jesus is good. Amen? Amen. Man, we could have stayed on that last song for another 20 minutes, and I wouldn't have to preach, and it would be a good Sunday. But as it is, I'm out here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to lead our time of Bible study today. And to do so, I want to read a pretty big chunk of Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to read through Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, If you've noticed, we're calling these last few weeks challenged. What we're seeing is Jesus is stepping into the beginning of his ministry, and almost immediately his ministry is challenged. Almost immediately, the things he... um, is saying people are questioning and challenging against him. So for the next several weeks, we'll be talking about the challenges of Jesus' ministry. But anyways, I just want to read verses 16 through 30 to put us in context. Jesus goes back to his hometown. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback Bible underneath the seat close to you. You're welcome to use that. You're welcome to take that home with you if you don't own one. And we'll put the words on the screen behind me so you can follow along there. So let's start here, verse four or verse 16, chapter 4. And it says that he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. And as was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And then he reads these words from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he also sent me to proclaim, he says, the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and Jesus sits down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Jesus then began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop, huge moment. We'll get to that in a moment, but that's a very big statement that Jesus is making. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus responds to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, or some translations might say home country. Verse 25, but in truth, he says, I tell you this, that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, And a great famine came over all of the land. And yet Elijah the prophet was sent to none of them, the Israelites, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
Now, when the people in the synagogue heard these things, they were all filled with wrath. And so they rose up and they drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Um, It's unwritten here, but I'll add these words, to kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus for what he just said. But verse 30, passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Mysteriously, magically, supernaturally, we don't know, but Jesus just walks away from them. So let's pray together. A couple things I want to say to you this morning. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you that we can come into a place that has a high regard for scripture, that we as a church, we we have a high regard for the, the scriptures, and we believe that what the scriptures teach us about God and about humanity are true. And so, God, we ask that our eyes would be opened for more understanding, more revelation. We ask for our ears, spiritual ears, to be attuned to what you're saying. Because we believe, Lord, that you are speaking to your people through your words. And so we ask that we, your people, we would hear what you have to say. And so we love you, God, and we ask that you be with us this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray, and everyone says, amen. 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 Right on. I really have a question that I want to ask you this morning. It's only one question, and I want you to consider it as I work through these, um, my notes. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been angry with him? Before you answer that, let's just talk about the character of who God is. The Bible's replete with all kinds of passages describing for us what God looks like, what he's like, what's his personality, what's his character. Um, we know this, that the Bible teaches us that God's character, he is wholly good. It just means that fully and completely he is good. There is nothing bad within him. In fact, we were singing earlier about the goodness of who God is. And the great thing about God's goodness is that it is unchanging. The Bible also tells tells us that God is immutable. It's a fancy word for just says, just means this. It means he's unchanging. He never changes. So God's goodness is forever. It was from the beginning and it will go through to the end. In fact, our lives in the middle of all of that eternity, God will be good in it. He'll be good in it in our kids' lives, in our grandkids' lives. And if God would tarry, he would be continue to be good for all eternity. He's never, hear me, not good. Amen? He's holy that there's no stain of sin or darkness or deceit or lie or anything within him. Everything that God is in his essence is holy and perfect. There could be no addition to him that would make him more God than he currently already is. In his own right, he exists perfect and holy. He is due worship whether we give it to him or not. He is not only receiving worship because we sing to him, but there are angels in heaven that sing to him if our mouths are shut. He gets worshiped all the time. He is holy and he will never not be holy. He is righteous. He has a moral perfection. As I mentioned, he never lies. Here's another one. He never has broken a promise ever ever, not in your lifetime, your parents' lifetime, or anyone's lifetime. Since God spoke the beginning of all creation in Genesis chapter one, he has never said something that he has not been faithful to fulfill. God is morally perfect. He is just, he is upright and fair in how he treats 
everything in his creation. He is loving. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is, say it with me now, merciful. He is merciful to his creation. He's so merciful that he sent his only son, Jesus, for us. That Jesus would create a way for us to have eternal life with him. Let me ask you a question. I really only have one question for you. Have you ever been mad? Have you ever been angry with God? Like that God that we were just describing, have you ever been frustrated with him? <laughs> I think, I think it's okay to, to say yes to that. Like, I'm not gonna ask you to fill out a form or nothing <laughs> and we'll start counseling on Monday, 9 a.m., who's first? But I think it's okay to, to admit that sometimes. I, I will go first. I have been angered at the Lord, for sure. But I want us to, to consider this, that I think it's actually a good thing sometimes if we're angry with him. And here's why. Don't throw things at me yet, but here's why. Because I think when we actually let our anger be expressed towards God, it's revealing something about the God we say we worship. Because if we admit all of those things about God in his character, his justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his loving, his kindness, his goodness, and if we can admit on all those things and still be frustrated with him because of something that happened in our lives, then we, it's possible that the, the God that we've enthroned in the throne room of our heart is actually not the God of scripture, but a caricature, a man-made idol totem fixture of a God that we have self-imposed our self-narcissism We've imposed culturally shaped ideals of who God is. We've somehow fashioned him to be the genie in a lamp that we rub when we need something. And when he doesn't fulfill that, we get angered at him. And this anger, what it does for us, it just reveals something that, that oh, I love you, but you're worshiping someone other than God. It's a picture of who you think God should be. In fact, we might argue you're worshiping a picture of yourself because you say things like this when you're angry with God. I wouldn't have done it that way. God, why, you know what I want. Why would you do that? And then you get so frustrated. I'm, I'm gonna tell you this. Someone told me this a long time ago. This might free some people in here. I don't know. I'm telling you, if you have all of the knowledge that God has, if you know everything that he knows from the past to the future to everything, you would still make the same decisions that he's made in your life. That he was, you, would, you would answer your prayers the same way that he's answered your prayers. <laughs> And if you're angry with him, if you're frustrated with him, I think it's exposing something about the God you say you worship. You guys tracking with me? Whew. Anger at its simplest element, it just means this. I'm against that. Whatever that is, I'm against it. And anger as it expresses itself in our lives is saying that. I wanna share a story with you. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles. I just wanna tell you this story is a parable that Jesus gives to the people that are listening to him. The parable is just a story that has sort of a, a moral meaning to it. And so Jesus begins to tell his listeners about uh, an, an owner of a vineyard. Some of you maybe have heard this parable before. 
But there's an owner of a vineyard and he needs some workers to go out into the vineyard to work for the day. And so he asks, he goes to the town square, if you will, the city, the diner, you know, all the guys hang out in the morning or whatever. And he, he says, who wants to work today? And he, he gets some workers who say yes. And he says, okay, if you work for me today, then I'm going to give you a denarius. It just means this. I'm going to give you some money. It's a day's wage in your mind. Let's just call it 150 bucks, whatever. Right? So if you work for me today, I'm going to give you $150. Who wants to work? Guys raise their hand and he takes them out to the vineyard and they work all day. About lunchtime, he goes back to the same place and, and there's still some people there that aren't working. He says, hey, who wants to work? And a couple guys raise their hands and he's like, all right, I'll take you out to the vineyard. You can work for me. That'd be great. I'll pay you at the end of the day. And that sounds great. And then at the end of the workday, there's like one hour left in the workday, Jesus tells a story and he goes back to the same place and there's still some guys that are working or not working, still sitting at the diner, right? And he goes, who wants to come work for me? And a couple guys raise their hands and he takes them out there. And at the end of the day, he asks his foreman to, to pay all of the workers. And it says this, it says that when the master told the foreman to pay the workers, that he went to the people that were only working for one hour and he gives them a denarius. He gives them a day's wage. Hear me, he gives them 150 bucks for one hour's work. Sign me up, somebody, right? <laughs> Sign me up. Right? And so immediately everyone else is looking around going, oh my gosh, if he gave them 150 bucks for one hour, I worked half a day, I'll probably make more. And those guys that worked all day, they're like, we're cashing in today, yeah? Yeah, that's what they think. And then he pays the second group, the people that worked half a day, and he gives them, guess what, a denarius. He gives them $150. And then he gets to the people that worked all day and he gives them a denarius. He gives them $150. And you can imagine their thoughts, in fact, Verse 11 of Matthew chapter 20 says this, and on receiving their denarius, their day's wage, it says they grumbled at the master of the house. And they said, th they said this, these last worked only one hour and yet you have made them equal to us? Equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? Verse 13, but the master replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius, for a day's wage? When I hired you, didn't I say, if you worked for me, I would give you 150 bucks? Verse 14, so he says, take what belongs to you and go. So I choose to give to the last worker as I give to them, as I give to you. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the sort of moral imperative in this story. In that story, it, we see a picture of what it looks like when somebody is angered or grumbling against someone else. They are against what just took place. But may I remind you of what Jesus said at the beginning of this parable. He said this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he tells them the parable. So the people in the story are not just frustrated with the master. We're to take this parable to be something like this, that God is the master of the vineyard. God owns everything, the creation, the earth, everything within it. And, and they were grumbling because the master, God chose to do something with someone that he thought they shouldn't receive. He was being compassionate and merciful to someone that they didn't think should receive that. And they grumbled and they were angered at what God had done. I only have one question for you this morning. Have you ever 
been angry with God? I'll take that as a yes. And angered at your phone right now, it sounds like. David Pallison, he's a, he has a master's of divinity, has a PhD. He's done counseling for decades. Christian author, writer. He has a book that I just got this last week called Good and Angry. He said this. He said, when little things push your buttons, it says something big about the buttons inside of you. <laughs> Smack in the face with that. And so when we find ourselves angry with God, what we're saying is we don't like who God is. We don't like the decisions God has made. And I'm just telling you, you're worshiping the wrong God. He, he's a genie that didn't give you the wish that you rubbed for. He's the Santa Claus that didn't obey all of your goodness. You earned it somehow that God deserved, you, you earned what God should give you and you're frustrated with him. So that being said, let's get back to the passage at hand in Luke chapter four, starting here in verse 16. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. Uh, just to catch you up, he had been um, in the desert for 40 days with the devil getting tempted. After that, the other gospels tell us that he went to Capernaum, another part of the region there in Judea, I think, or Galilee. And he's, he's performing some miracles. We know about the, the wedding miracle, the water to wine, all that stuff's happening. Luke doesn't record that for us, but, but historically that's what's happening in this timeline. Then Jesus makes his way back to Nazareth, his hometown. This is where he grew up, right? He saw his third grade teacher at the diner. He saw all the stuff and this is hanging out with his people. And it says that he went back to his hometown where he was brought up as was his, and as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is verse 16. And it says verse 17 that they, they take a, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, they give it to Jesus and he unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it was written um, and he reads this passage of Isaiah. Now, uh, in the synagogue worship, there was two pieces of reading. There was usually a, a reading from the law, right? Math, uh, uh, Moses' law, um, and then there was a, a reading from the prophets and someone else read from the law and Jesus is given this reading from the prophets and he gets the, the scroll of Isaiah and it says that he, he looks for and he finds the place where it is written and he quotes Isaiah 61 that says this, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor or the poor in spirit. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And again, this this is a mic drop moment for them because in the, in, in the, the Jewish people would have understood that the year of the Lord's favor, it spoke to something that only the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah, just so you know, it's a Hebrew word that just means anointed one or choice, chosen one. And in the Old Testament, we hear of kings and priests and, and prophets and other people who are anointed to do God's purpose. And we would call them Messiah's lowercase m. But, but Jewish theology teaches us that they're waiting, all of the Jewish people are waiting for one day when the Messiah, capital M Messiah, would come. This passage in Isaiah 61 is what we call a messianic prophecy. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah penned these words, proclaiming that a day would come when the Messiah would fulfill these things. Jesus reads those things and says, boom, I'm the guy. And they lost their minds. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Doesn't he make furniture and little bitty toys for children in the carpentry shop? Isn't he the one that used to get in trouble from running away from his brothers and sisters when it was dinner time? I don't know. Imagine your story, right? They know Jesus 
And they have this question. Even though he says that this scripture has been fulfilled, <laughs> they question it. Verse 22, it says that all the people spoke well of him at first. I added at first. And they marveled at his gracious words. Can we just side note real quick? Like if you have any desire to tell people about the king, Jesus, his kingdom, um, what God's kingdom can look like on the earth, can you please try to use words that are gracious? Because that's the, the picture that Jesus used. Those are the words that Jesus used. They marveled at the graciousness of his words that were coming from his mouth. Again, they question, verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? And then something unique happens. I don't want to read these verses because they, they, they seem kind of strange, but this is what happens. They had heard all of the miracles that Jesus had been performing in Capernaum. They had heard about eyes being opened, wine being coming from water, all this stuff. And he says, I bet what you guys want now is for me to perform some miracles for y'all here. I bet that's what you want. That's why he quotes that old proverb. Well, if you're a physician, then heal yourself. Let's see it. Put up or shut up. Prove it is what they're asking. Just prove it. You say you're the one. Mic drop. Let's see you do something. And Jesus rebukes them because they, they want a, a God or a picture of God who, who serves them and performs like them like a circus monkey. They just want to, to turn the crank and Jesus should step into line and do the very things that they want him to do. Removing from him his all-powerfulness, his omniscience, his, his, his greatness above everything, that he is going to be reduced to somebody who just serves them with no regard to what God wants to do on the earth. And he rebukes them for that. He says, I'm not going to do that. In fact, he'll say this, a prophet is not even in ex acceptable in their hometown. And Jesus seems to know them, whether it's by living with them for all those years, that's where he grew up, or he knows them through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd argue probably both, right? Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if, you, if you're a person here who's been filled with the Spirit, you know this. Sometimes God will tell you things about other people. You just know it. You didn't have to figure it out. You just understand it. My wife has a discernment level that'll knock your socks off. I remember one time I was uh, playing a, in a band. Oh my gosh, this is way too particular. I'll make up something. I knew a guy who played in a band and uh, <laughs> there's another person in the band. And my wife used to say this about him. Don't trust him. There's something up with him. I'm like, dude, so you don't even know what you're talking about. Like he's a great guy. Fast forward two years. Guess who was right? Stacy. She was right. This guy was a buffoon and a moron and I didn't need to trust him. Anyways, Jesus seems to know something about those people and he calls them on it. And then he proceeds to tell them two stories. He tells them two stories from the Old Testament. A prophet named Elijah and Elisha. Not the same person, different people. He sits down. This is an interesting um, aspect of what Luke is trying to tell us. Tells us. When he reads the scroll of Isaiah, he says that he takes the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant and he sits down. Now, in my modern mind, I get the picture that somehow Jesus walked up the stairs in a church service, grabbed the scroll, read a piece, and then handed it back to the pastor and then went back and sat down in a seat. But that's not what is being alluded to here. That in, in that culture, when, the, when a teacher was about to teach, he would oftentimes sit and the people would gather around him, sometimes standing. Sometimes they would sit around him, but they would crowd close to him. What Luke is telling us that after he read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, it says that he sits down 
teach them something. And he begins to teach a sermon to them. Luke only records for us, for us that one line. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But I get the impression that Jesus continued to talk to them for some time. And in fact, in that little sermon, if you will, that Jesus is giving, he begins to tell the people about two um, prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Stay with me. This is going to get real good. He says in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings that Elijah was serving God when there was a drought. For three years and six months, there was a drought. And he tells his listeners here that there were many widows, Hebrew Israelite widows who were starving because of the drought. But God did not send Elijah to those widows, but rather sent them to a woman from Sidon, who's a non-Jew, wait for it, who's a Gentile who is someone who's not of God's family. And the prophet of God goes to that person and a miracle is performed. Um, she wants to bake a cake with a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil that she has left with her son. And she even says these words to Elijah, just let us make one cake so that we can eat it and die. And Elijah says, I'll tell you what, if you make that cake and feed it to me, God will perform a miracle and your oil won't run out, and your flour won't run out, and sure enough, that's what happened. So a miracle's performed, and Jesus reminds them that this was done not to a Jewish widow, but to a, a Gentile widow. And then he tells the story of the prophet Elisha, who healed a person who had leprosy. But he doesn't heal any of the Jewish people who have leprosy. He makes a point to heal this person who is a man named Naaman, who is a Syrian. And not only was he a Syrian, he was a commander in the Syrian army, and the Syrian army, wait for it, were enemies to Israel. Enemies to Israel. Not like, yeah, we don't kind of like those people like St. Teresa. <laughs> or Warrensburg. Anyone? Anyways. No, it's like, it's, it's more of a hatred. It's like, it's like St. Teresa is really what it's like. Okay, I'm going too far. All right. I have a thing inside of me. You don't want to know. But he's, he's very frustrated, right? He, listen, he doesn't do this work for um, the, the Jewish people, but for the, the Syrian general commander of the army. He heals him from leprosy and Jesus reminds them of that story. the beginning of Jesus' sermon, they were, they were marveling at all of the gracious words that were flowing from Jesus' mouth. And by the end of the sermon, they grabbed him and dragged him to the top of a hill to kill him. Why? What caused them to be so angry at Jesus that they wanted to silence him, not just today, but forever? Because the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus was laying before him, the prophecy fulfilled in Isaiah 61 verses one and two by Jesus himself, who says, I'm coming to the poor in the spirit, the ones who are broken, the destitute, which includes even the Gentiles, the Jewish listener in the synagogue couldn't fathom a God who would show grace to people who do not believe in him. Because that's the issue. Because the Gentile people do not believe in God. So why would he even show compassion to them? Why would he show grace to them if they don't even believe in him? They don't serve him. They don't follow the food dietary laws. They don't do the sacrifices. They don't go to the temple or the synagogues and worship. They do none of that stuff. And you're telling me God's gonna be gracious to them? 
our mind goes back to that parable from Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a vineyard who owns everything, bro. Who owns it all. And he can do what he wants to with whatever he wants to. And his graciousness, he was gracious to Israel for sure. They, they have a special place and, right, and they still can have salvation through Jesus Christ. They're not being left out. But I think they're thinking to themselves, are you kidding me, God? We work so hard for you. We follow all the rules and those Gentiles do nothing for you. And you're telling me you're going to be gracious to them like you are to me? I've been, so you're saying, Jesus, I've been wasting my time these last many years serving you, worshiping you, sacrificing for you, not eating pork. Come on, God, I've been doing all the things. Bacon. And they just couldn't fathom this idea. I have one question for you. Have you ever been angry with God? I'm telling you, man, if you've been angry with him and, and with the pastor's heart and with all compassion, I'm like, as, as much grace as I can give towards you, your anger towards him was a good thing because it's going to topple down the false God that you've placed on the throne of your heart. That you've created a caricature of who God is. And when he's not performing for you, you, you have no place for him. I've asked God to, to liberate us from that today. This is why I feel so strongly that churches who, who teach scripture faithfully, who, who, who have a high regard for scripture, as we've already established, that the truth about God would be revealed, not only in the preaching, but in the worship songs and everything we say. And so that there comes a day when you have to have that, that, that rub between who you think God is and what Bible really tells us about him, and you have to deal with it. Praise God, you have to deal with it. Praise the Lord that he would reveal to you that the God you think you love and worship is not, a, is not the real picture of me. You've distorted who I am with something else and God bless you, I'm gonna remove that from you. And so when you're angered at him, it's, he's done nothing wrong to you. He can't do wrong. Do I need to go back to all those things at the beginning? He's always good. He's never been anything but good. He's always been trustworthy and faithful and true. He's never lied. He's never deceived. He's never done any of those things. And if you're fresh, is this tracking with anyone? I can start over. I'm totally fine to start over. These false gods in the Old Testament, you read that they'd have these idols, these things fashioned from man's hand that they would worship, which seems so bizarre to us. And yet look around the room. I think we've done that in our own hearts, that we've created something We've, we've formed God. Like it's the God of the Bible plus this. We're going to add this to him. Also, I'm his favorite. We say that all the time. I had a friend of mine had a little, uh, what's that thing you put your coffee mug on? Coaster? Thank you. You're no help, by the way. Uh, it's a coaster. It's a coaster. And a coaster said this, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> Which is so fun and wrong. <laughs> that somehow he, he owes you more than anyone else. And I'm just saying, we prop up a God like that, and when the waves of the world hit it, it crashes, it crumbles. Praise God, it crumbles. 
When hardship comes in our lives and that thing is exposed, when, it, when, it, when our faith begins to waver a little bit and because the, the anchor that we had our, our lives attached to begins to shake, what, what God is revealing to us is that the, the thing we've attached to is not really him. It's, a, it's, it's like an image of him, but not really him because the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is the bedrock of our faith, that when storms come, never shakes, never shakes, that he's trustworthy. When Jesus finished his sermon, their attitude towards him changed. What has happened in your life that has caused your attitude towards God to change? What hardship? And I'm not dismissing, and I'm not trying to minimize any hardship that you've gone through, but what, what have you gone through that has somehow changed the way you view who God is? And if you've gone through something like that recently, maybe this year in the past couple of years, um, may I just lovingly encourage you to praise the Lord for seeing that. Say, Lord, thank you for letting me see that I've, I've been expecting more from you than whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? And then, and then learn to worship the true God. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote many letters. We have them in our New Testament. And a lot of them he wrote from prison. We call them his prison letters or his prison epistles. And, and he talks about that sometimes. It doesn't matter what hardship that I'm going through, that God is still worthy of worship. This is what I'm trying to say. I'm gonna land the plane right here and I'm gonna walk off the stage. But if our circumstances dictate whether or not we worship God or not, then something's wrong. Is all I'm trying to say. That our circumstances should never change who, who God is. And so I just want to close in prayer. I've already said, I want eyes to be open, ears to be open to hear this. And I just want the Lord to do something special for us. Gosh, we were singing a song earlier about gratitude, right? Just the thankfulness of God. Can you, can you imagine like in the midst of turmoil and struggle that we just are continuing, continuing to thank God? When things aren't going well at home and You've got a wayward son or daughter who just knew better, but is making the worst choices imaginable. And they're caught up in addiction. They're caught up in something. And you're just, you're praying for them. You're like, Lord, I don't understand. And like in the midst of all that, we still worship him. In the midst of acorn closing and 400 pink slips going out and the city reeling from that again, really Lord, again, like Decatur needs another black eye. <laughs> we choose to worship. He's worthy of our worship and our situation is, is terrible, but it's, it's not forever. God is forever, amen? He is, he's forever. <laughs> and you're gonna experience it one day. Like you'll step into eternity with him. And like for a moment, if we get this opportunity to even think about all the stuff we used to worry about, we're gonna giggle at the ridiculousness of our finite mind. Lord, I pray, would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the magnitude of who you are, the greatness and the wonder and the beauty and the goodness and the truthfulness and the love and the kindness and the graciousness of everything that you are, God. Would you open our eyes to that?
And would you, would you, this is so weird, would you slather it like peanut butter on top of bread of our lives, Lord? Would you just cover everything in our lives with your goodness, God? God, we need um, a revival. We need a, an awakening of our own uh, of our own person, Lord. We need something to change in us. And then we'll see it sort of spread into the lives of those around us. But God, you have to start with us. And so we confess to you, Lord, that we have made you to be somebody you're not. And when you didn't perform for us, we got frustrated with you. So we repent of that, Lord God. We repent and we turn away from that. That you're always worthy of worship. God, I ask that you would cause us to sing of your goodness, of your greatness. Would you give us the voice? This has been my prayer this last two months or so. God, just let us praise you for what you're worth in the midst of circumstances that don't seem worthy of it, Lord. Help us to praise you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would help us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.